You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. Steve Waters! I will tell that story about Molly leaving UEA. I can tell you, I was halfway through an appraisal meeting and I noticed the form that she should have filled out was vacant for the final four pages and then she told me she was leaving. Anyway, that's that's for another night. (laughs) So this is very, very scary for me. Uh, I'm a playwright. I usually get people to stand up and speak for me, uh, characters, fictions and so on. I never talk about myself on stage, so please bear with me. Um, Sparks Fly was not doing it for me for a very long time for tonight. I couldn't come up with anything except for Bonfire Night and nothing really ever happened on Bonfire Night. So then I started thinking in a slightly more gloomy way about sparks flying and conflict. And I suppose most of us have been thinking about one conflict since October the 7th uh, when Hamas made their way out of Gaza and and wreaked havoc um, in southern Israel. And then, of course, right now we're watching this terrifying uh, revenge on that event. And it reminded me of the day I invaded Lebanon. And that statement obviously needs a little bit more context, so I shall provide some of it now. So I'm 18. It's 1984. That You can do the maths. Uh, and uh, I'm doing something that we used to call a gap year, kind of quaint uh, middle-class ritual. And uh, I find myself in Hendon in North London, and I find myself signing up to go to Israel to live in a kibbutz. It's a place called Kibbutz Dahlia. It's in northern Galilee, and I'm there for six months. Um, This is a person from rugby. Uh, I've barely been out of the country before. I don't quite know why I've done it, and I don't think anybody else there knows quite why they're there either, other than the Kibbutzniks. So the Kibbutz was formed in the 30s by people from Romania and Germany fleeing fascism. It's also by the bones of an abandoned Arab village. There was a bit of a story there in 1948. Uh, But I'm there to have fun. Uh, It's my gap year. Uh, So I'm there, okay, I'm working. I'm working in a citrus grove, picking lemons and kumquats. I think that's how you pronounce that. Uh, I'm working in the kitchens. At nights, I work in the soap factory, which effectively kind of underwrites the whole kibbutz. I'm working with Bedouin guys and drinking Turkish coffee and speed reading Middlemarch because this is my gap year, remember. And it's great. I mean, I'm having fun. I'm there really to sort of lose my virginity and get drunk on Raki every night. I am mindful that I'm in the middle of a geopolitical hotspot. After all, it, we're two years into the invasion of Lebanon to the north by Israel. This is 84, as I say. Um, and at that point, uh, the reason they're there is obviously because of the Palestinian people driven out of Israel in 1948. Uh, many of them living in camps in the south of Lebanon, forming, of course, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Anyway, I was blissfully unaware of that. So most nights we used to hang out, um, we we basically lived in a series of shacks at the bottom of the the kibbutz. Uh, We were the volunteers from all over the world. I'll just try and remember a few of my peers. There was Klaus from Bavaria. There was Patty from the Wirral. There was Bill from Balham. There was a guy called Bernard who wanted to be a vicar. Uh, 
there was Karen from New Zealand, uh, and then there was me and there was a bunch of other people as well. Why were we there? None of us really knew. Basically, we were there to spread the word of Zionism. We're essentially there to show that the kibbutz was a benevolent experiment in socialism. And indeed it was. Uh, there I was kind of basically getting socialist wages, i.e. not very much, eating in a collective canteen and doing these extraordinary jobs. And every night we would gather around the fire and tell stories. Sparks would fly. Uh, there, there'll, be, there'll be at least one more spark in the story. Um, and then there was this guy who kept joining us night after night. His name was David. David was a bit older than us. David was probably about 20 years older than us. Uh, and I really couldn't place David. Where had he come from? He came from the UK. He was from London. Uh, he was extremely blonde, very tanned, a bit chunky. Uh, he used to wear kind of che wind cheaters and shorts. He looked a little bit like a PE teacher crossed with a sort of, I don't know, uh, uh, somebody in the AS SAS or something like that. He, he had a sort of faint military whiff about him. And every night, David would join us around the campfire as we drank all this raki arak or whatever it was called. And, and he would tell us blood-curdling stories about what was going on in the north of the country. He would tell us about Palestinian incursions into kibbutz, like the very one we were staying in. And we would all get a bit drunk and a bit bored and nodded along, but David didn't seem to ever go home. He didn't seem to have anywhere to go to. And one day he proposed to take us on a trip. This was a time before safeguarding. Uh, we didn't know the meaning of that word. Uh, it was basically David, a minibus, and us. We could have all disappeared from the face of the earth. And he decided to take us on a tour of the hotspots of a basically a war zone. So our first port of call was Jericho. Uh, then, then that was in what was called the Occupied Territories. Now it's in Palestinian Authority land. Uh, we all piled out of the bus, uh, had a bit of a swim in a broken water pipe with a bunch of Arab kids. Back in the bus again. We headed up to the north, uh, to the Golan Heights, if anybody knows the vexed history of the region. We pull up against the wire mesh fence and have our lunch looking at the Syrian gun emplacements staring at us with undisguised malice. So far, so good. We're all having a great time. And then David decides we need to go on a trek. And we decide to go west towards the Lebanon Israel border. Now, bearing in mind that we're two years into an invasion into that region. So that is a pretty dangerous part of the world. It's a sort of series of knotty river valleys, very beautiful, the odd ruined Crusader castle, probably quite a lot of ordnance down there as well. And who knows, maybe one or two Palestinian irregulars waiting for a bit of vengeance. We pull up and we go on our trek. We make our way along a river valley. We have no idea where David is leading us. It's hot. It's it's wet because we're walking along the riverbed, slipping here, there, and we come to an impasse. And to be honest, by this point, I'm starting to feel like I don't really like David anymore. I'm starting to find David quite a dangerous presence in my life. And I'm 18, and I'm a bit reluctant to carry on with this walk. And my dad was the head of Rugby Ramblers, you know, so I like walking. But we're at an impasse. We're basically on a cliff edge. Below us, 50 metres below, is a turquoise pool. There is no way forward other than to jump into this pool, according to David. I mean, I haven't seen the map, and I haven't seen any compasses being referred to, but Klaus went, down he went, Patty was down there, Karen went down, everybody else went down, I was standing on the edge shitting myself. I'm not physically brave as a person, uh, but David seemed pretty adamant that I had to jump too, and so I did. And I jumped down, 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 down into a turquoise pool. I can still feel the cold crystalline water. 
So then David decided we had to do something else, even more dangerous. So we decided to set up our tents, and we were sitting around the fire, sparks were flying, and he said, there's a cave nearby. There's a cave nearby, and it's an amazing cave system that goes in the sort of underland between Israel and Lebanon. Okay, sometimes it slightly goes into Lebanon, but it's a cave, you know, and basically the Israeli defense forces have been here, they've cleared the area. It's, you know, there's risk, it's not negligible, but it's a low risk. What do you think, guys? And once again, Klaus seems quite up for it, Patty's pretty up for it. Karen's up for it, Bill's up for it, even Bernard's up for it. Uh, I'm genuinely not up for it for a number of reasons. Uh, Firstly, I don't really like climbing. Uh, Abseiling will actually be the technique to go into this cave. Uh, It's the middle of the night, and it is highly likely that somebody there will be awaiting us to slaughter us (laughs) for the malign geopolitics that we're endorsing. But David's offer to me is basically you do this thing, you wait here in the dark on your own. Okay, that's clear. We all rope up. Everyone gets roped up. And as David's fitting my ropes on, um, he then reaches in his backpack and pulls out a gun. So I don't know anything about guns. So I don't know what sort of gun it was. It was definitely, it could have been a pistol. I don't know, an Uzi sounds plausible. But it was definitely a weighty gun. And his comment was, just to be sure, just in case. In case of what exactly, David? (laughs) Anyway, we head off into the dark. We're not allowed torches because that will give us away. We're stumbling on roots and branches. The moon's coming through rather intermittently through the trees. We can hear owls. Uh, And then we reach this little pool of dark in the middle of a whole load of other bits of dark. And we're meant to go down there backwards into that hole, into that cave system. Klaus is up for it. He's down there. Patty's straight after him. Uh, I can see the light wobbling down below, the cries. Uh, and naturally, I'm the last person standing on the lip of this cave mouth, roped up, abseiling, not particularly keen on heights, not particularly keen on darkness, not particularly keen on being slaughtered for very valid reasons. And David's, I expect him to really have a go at me. Well, actually, he's really nice to me. I think he can see that I'm really, really scared. Uh, I don't think David likes me particularly, and I, as I say, don't particularly like him. I think he thinks I'm a bit snarky. I think he thinks I'm a bit surly. But he's gentle. He coaxes me down into this formative experience that I really don't want to have, into the darkness. Okay, and I'm afraid here's the anticlimax. It was fine. We went down to the dark... There were a lot of bats, guano, we slipped up a bit, and then we resurfaced in the dawn. We're dirty, we're tired, we're achy. We sat in the back of the minibus, and David drove us back to Kibbutz Dahlia as if he owned the fucking country. <laughs> and I kept thinking about his gun. What was he, in Mossad? Was he a member of the MI5, 6, whatever the people were that might be in Israel? But then I kind of thought a little bit about myself, and I suppose right now I'm thinking a bit about myself. Why was I there? Why was David there? Why were most of the people on that trip there? What the hell did we think we were doing? And I think about every young man in the Israeli Defense Forces is about to do something pretty awful. What do they feel about that as an 18-year-old with somebody barking at them? What about those young guys who were forced into Hamas to sort of take the actions they're taking? What courage do they have to draw upon to say no? 
And that's the end of my story. Thank you for listening. Steve Waters! True Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website truestorieslive.co.uk.